Before we dive into the eerie tales of the past, I have some electrifying news to share with you. I'm excited to announce that the Haunted History Chronicles podcast now has its very own small shop of the macabre and mysterious. Picture this. Exclusive merchandise, hauntingly beautiful artwork, spine-tingling stickers, mugs that will make your morning coffee seem positively paranormal, and prints that capture the ghostly essence of days gone by. Whether you're a long-time listener of the show or a newcomer drawn to the enigmatic allure of haunted history, the shop is your gateway to the supernatural. Imagine decorating your space with a piece of history, a connection to the spectral past. The merchandise is designed to evoke the very essence of the stories I share, making it an essential addition to your collection, of all things eerie. You can find all these hair-raising treasures on the website, or simply follow the links conveniently placed in the podcast description notes. It's so easy, even a ghost could do it. So whether you're searching for the perfect addition to your haunted memorabilia collection, or just wanting to immerse yourself in the world of the supernatural, the shop is here to provide. Dive into the past, embrace the spook, and let the stories of history's ghosts haunt your space. So why not visit the shop today, and remember, the spirits of the past are waiting for you. The Haunted History Chronicles exclusive merchandise is just a click away. Happy shopping, and may the spirits be with you. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Haunted History Chronicles. First of all, thank you for taking a listen to this episode. Before we begin, I just want to throw out a few ways you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon page as well as an Amazon link, so hopefully if you're interested in supporting, you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those can either be found in the show notes or over on the website. Of course, just continuing to help spread the word of the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with friends and family is also a huge help. So thank you for all that you do. And now, let's get started by introducing today's podcast or guest. Welcome, fellow history enthusiasts and lovers of the supernatural, to another spine-chilling episode of Haunted History Chronicles. Today we embark on a journey that transcends time and space, delving deep into the ancient mysteries of Egypt's haunted past. Picture yourself standing at the entrance of an ancient tomb, surrounded by the whispers of the past. The air is thick with anticipation as we unravel the enigmatic beliefs in ghosts from ancient Egypt. The afterlife, a paradise where the living could keep everything lost at death in the fields of eternity, comes to life in our exploration. But beware, for the spirits of the past are restless, and we are joined by a special guest, a historian and writer from Liverpool, here in the United Kingdom, Michelle Keeley Adamson, a passionate Egyptologist, with a focus on the Victorian era's fascination with ancient Egypt, known as Egyptomania. Michelle is here to guide us through the eerie corridors of history. As we peel back the layers of time, Michelle will share insights into the enduring Egyptian views on death, where the afterlife was a paradise, 
and ghosts were as real as any other aspect of existence. We'll learn about the harmony and balance of Mat, the central value of Egyptian culture, and the profound importance of proper burial for maintaining the cosmic order. Our journey through the ancient tombs will reveal the complex nature of the soul and explore the haunting stories of spirits returning to address unresolved issues in the world of the living. Michelle will shed light on the mystical practices surrounding the deceased. From letters to the dead, seeking intercession, to the living's pragmatic interactions with Egyptian ghosts, our exploration promises to be both enlightening and spine-tingling. Brace yourselves as we descend further into the depths of the past, where the veil between the living and the dead is thin, and the secrets of the afterlife await. Stay tuned for a chilling adventure like no other. Hi Michelle, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Hello, nice to nice to chat to you. The two Michelles, it's going to be quite confusing. I know, I know. So it's a good solid name though, isn't it? It's a... <laughs> very solid name, very solid name. Um, yeah, I think... I don't know if your mum and dad named you for the same reason, but mine was the the Beatles song, so yeah. they were avid fans. Yeah, I think there was an element of that with mine as well. My mum's middle name was Michelle, so um, yeah, I think I got I got sort of half named after that and half named after the Beatles. There, there definitely seems to be kind of around my age and then younger and slightly older. You know that when it, they were really very popular, a lot of Michelles, I think so. Yeah, it's always nice to get to chat to a fellow Michelle, especially on the podcast. It is. There's not too many of us around these days. I think we need to, you know, do a bit of a drive to bring the name back. It's a good one. <laughs> it is, yeah. It doesn't seem to make the, the list, does it, of the top it 100 no. names in the way that it used to. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can start a resurgence. Let's vote for yeah. Michelle. Yeah, I think so. We'll get the we'll get the Beatles song trends in again. It'll be fine. Yes, definitely. It's a plan. We'll get that started. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your background and, you know, what you do and why you became interested in the topic that we're going to be talking about tonight, really? Yeah, okay. So I am a historian and a writer and um, I did history at university and then went back as a mature student to study Egyptology, uh, which was my sort of lifelong passion. It's what I wanted to do since I was a little girl. And I really became interested in it because my mum used to take me to the museum um, at like quite quite a lot actually. We dragged her there most weekends. And then after that, you know, we'd go to the library and she'd take out books for me on ancient Egypt and things like that. And it just sort of stuck with me. Um, and then, uh, you know, I've, I've done research on uh, ancient Egyptian graves sort of focus on uh, Egyptomania, the reception of ancient Egypt, mostly in the Victorian era, but moving up to the modern day as well. And then I just try and create articles and, and stuff on social media that makes it an accessible topic that if people are interested in it, then they can, they can come and learn more. And we were kind of talking before about how it really is something that for many people is almost a lifelong interest that starts you know when we start introducing it very young in our primary school education and then just seems to endure something of fascination for different reasons and 
And I think we see that by the appeal of um, museum exhibitions mm. and how well they are received when when something of particular note is put out on display or they make a really interesting showcase of mummies or yes, or other types yeah. of artefacts. You know, people really do enjoy going and seeing them. And I think that's quite universal. I think you see it all around the world, This very, very much this intrigue and interest mm. in ancient Egypt. I think it's, it's something you were saying earlier, actually. I think it's something just quite human about it um, in, in finding similarities with people from the past. You know, it feels like so long ago, but, you know, we can find so many things in common with people from the past. And I think that's part of what, makes the sort of enduring lore and fascination with Egypt um, just just move through time. And obviously we've got big peaks of it, you know, with like waves in the Victorian era, Tootmania with, with the discovery of Tutankhamun and things like that. But there's always this sort of undercurrent where, like you say, people are interested in it from childhood. And it's it's amazing. It's, it's really fascinating, I think. I, I completely agree. And I, and I think it's that, we like to find the similarities, even in the differences. And yeah. and when you look at some of the, you know, the core beliefs, particularly in things like the afterlife, this is where mm. you can see connections. And and it's something that is universal. You know, it's something that intrigues all cultures across the world and yeah. has done for centuries this interest in what happens to people after death. Yes. And and that's just one example of of where we can find similarities, even in the differences. Things that interested people from centuries ago are still things that interest us today. Yeah. And and I think that's part of the appeal. Yeah, definitely. And I think when we come to the the sort of paranormal aspect of it as well, um, yeah, that that's really apparent. Because it ghosts are as old as time, really. You know, we've got ghosts and on hauntings, reporting to hauntings going back to Mesopotamia, and you know, so it's something that's kind of ingrained in us, I think. And and I guess it's partly like again, quite a human need and desire to want to know things, and it's kind of the thing that we don't really know about. We, we don't know for sure. And I think that's part of the reason why people from cultures centuries back and, you know, you know, for thousands and thousands of years and, and even up to today, why people are so interested in it. Absolutely. And this is why I'm so intrigued and just so enthusiastic about having the chance to talk to you because I think there will be things that we, we cover that even though people may be interested, mm. may not actually know themselves. And, um, you know, I think we're going to be touching on talking points that don't really have, don't get discussed as much no. and, and aren't as well known as other types of, of examples of, you know, stories and accounts that you maybe yeah. have in, in other periods. So I think it would be really interesting to look at some of the some of the things that we're going to be talking about tonight. I think it will be a really intriguing discussion. So I can't wait. <laughs> I'm li- honestly, I'm lit- I've been excited to to have this chat with you for weeks. I can't oh, wait. No, same. I've been so looking forward to it. Um, you know, especially being a, a bit of a spooky person myself. Like you know, I love anything like this anyway. I love the paranormal. So getting to sort of blend the two things together and talk about it with you, it's, it's just, yeah, it's great. I've been really looking forward to it. 
So do you want to just start off by telling us how it is that we know about these ancient Egyptian ghost stories? Yes. So we know about them because of materials, so physical things that have been left behind uh, in or around tombs. Um, also, we know about ancient Egyptian religion and and like beliefs in the afterlife, which contributes to that. But with regard to the sort of ghost story aspect of it, yeah, that that we have physical evidence for that happening to people, um, which is amazing. So, ancient Egyptians, uh, you know, they found themselves haunted, or they had a specific request for the dead, maybe they could leave a letter and we usually find these in tombs and they're found on papyri and linens and bowls as well. So as part of an offering for the dead. That's so fascinating. I mean, it, it feels very similar to discussions that I had with Professor Irving Finkel about ancient Mesop- Mesopotamia, yes. where this, yeah. this communication with the dead being almost intrinsically part of yeah. their everyday world and their existence And that's why it's something that was documented the way that it was on the clay tablets in the sense that um, it was just part of their everyday culture. And if they had these problems, this is what they did. It would be recorded and and put down in order to try and deal with the problem, but also as a record of what has happened. And it feels similar to that, really. It is, yeah. Yeah, it's really similar. I think one of the sort of key differences with with. Uh, ancient Egyptian with the examples of hauntings is that you can appeal directly to the dead which is is fascinating in itself but it also ties into we have the 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 mortuary cult or the cult of the dead in ancient Egypt and it's kind of like ceremonial uh, religious practice and it ensures the dead have got a good passage through um, to the afterlife and then they have a nice stay when they're there and things like that and when we when we're seeing these letters written on bowls, for example, this is part of that that mortuary cult. So it's it's leaving an offering in a bowl, so the dead's more likely to go, oh, what's that? And then and then read the letter. Um, so obviously we've we've also got it on, you know, we've got things recorded on tomb walls in terms of you know prayers to the dead and things like that. But I, I think it's just so interesting that we just have this evidence for actual contact <laughs> with the beyond beyond the grave you know yeah a, a type of spirit communication yes yeah is there a theme as to the types of messages that um are recorded in the sense of does it indicate why this person is being haunted is it linked to specific types of themes and and things that are happening maybe with the dead I'm, i mean i know you just mentioned about the aim is obviously you want them to have that good passage into the afterlife mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if there's some kind of connection there with maybe why these hauntings are believed to have taken place and being recorded. Yeah, so there's a couple of different reasons. Um, so there's, there's there's quite a few. I'll probably just focus on two. So you've got the idea of uh, returning to help or returning to haunt. So um, I think what might be useful as well is to, to think about what, the ancient Egyptians sort of understood a ghost to be and how a person's made up because that then affects how that person might come back in the afterlife then, uh, you know, as a spirit. So we've got, you know, you've got the corpse when you die and then there's other parts here that make you up. So you've got your name, uh, you've got the shadow, which is, is 
known as the shoot, uh, the car, which is the creative life force of a person, uh, the bar, which you might you'll see on in the Book of the Dead, for example, or on um, tomb scenes, which is kind of it looks like a, well, it is a bird, it's a bar bird, and it's got the head of the person. Um, and that sort of represents the personality or what makes you unique. And then you've got the ach, and the, this is the spirit. So the ach is what can come back to the mortal plane to interact with the living or carry out requests on their behalf. So if you're asking for something, this is this is this is that. But you to become ach, you've got to undergo sort of proper processes during mummification and burial. And you've got to have the right spells to achieve this state of act. So when we think about contacting the dead or the dead returning, we know that the Egyptians believed that they could do this uh, and that you could interact with the act. And that's what we might now interpret as a ghost. So, yeah, we've got, like I say, we've got these these sort of two, two sides of it, returning to help and returning to haunt, which is... Uh, fascinating in itself because you've got this idea of directly appealing to the dead which I think as well going back to what you were saying about connections with modern times and um, us sort of finding common ground with ancient religions and ancient cultures I kind of see it as quite similar to how you might you know in Christianity or Catholicism you might light a candle for the dead in church but you might also call in a few favours as part of that. So, you know, asking your great-great-nan for help with an interview and that sort of thing. And yeah, that's the, the kind of thing that we're seeing in ancient Egypt as well, when we see this idea of uh, returning to help. And there, there seems to be a degree of almost magic and symbolism and and ritual to it as mm-hmm. well in, in that sense, which again, I think is also really fascinating to kind of unpick some of that because um, it, again, it's something that we see in in lots of, of cultures, but also just like you were talking about these, these very um, simple rituals that we still do in modern day, things like lighting the candle, that's a ritual of communication with the yes. dead. Yeah. And if we then translate that to paranormal investigating whether it's someone communicating through something like a Ouija board or automatic writing these becomes rituals in their own right yeah so it is fascinating to make these types of connections I think with spirit communication going all the way back to some of these ancient cultures because yeah I think it reveals an awful lot about the power and the belief that people had and still have with communicating with the dead and I think that's important yeah and I think you know it's it as it, it's, it's part of it it's accepted in ancient Egypt as part of their religious practice as part of their culture whereas obviously today it's not um as accepted if you were if you said you were going to go and leave a, a letter in someone's grave <laughs> to help you out with something people might raise an eyebrow um but yeah it's all it's part of part of life then and like you say part of ritual as well so and it comes back to this idea of the mortuary cults again so the 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 cult of the dead and the the ritualistic things that people would do for the dead so bringing offerings in you know say saying prayers for people as well uh, you know people might do that sort of not as formal as a letter 
Um, you know, you could do that. You could do that wherever. You could do that whenever. But yeah, I think it's 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 really interesting this idea. So, are there other similarities with, you know, the perception of the ghost in ancient Egypt with modern ideas about ghosts? You know, there are other other similarities that you would say are really important to make note of. Um, I think probably the sort of things that they're asking for. Uh, so in this uh, sort of, when people are trying to ask for help, so the kinds of things that they're asking to help for might be things that we might also want help for in the modern day. So it could be things like legal disputes. Um, it could be if you needed, a, if you had an issue with inheritance or uh, if you needed help with fertility and things like that. And there's, there's also, a, there's examples of sibling disputes as well which I find really really interesting so it's you know going back to brothers and sisters uh, arguing back even in, in ancient times and things like that and there's a really good example actually so it's I think it's in the Petrie Museum I'm not sure if it's on display uh, but it's um, a man called Shepsy and he's appealing to his deceased parents to interject because he's having a row with his brother but his brother's dead so that's a bit of a plot twist when you <laughs> when you're reading it and he writes a letter on a bowl and leaves it in his parents tomb and he's kind of like you know just a reminder i've been i've been great i've been leaving you all these things in your tomb i've been doing all my ritualistic practices down to a tea and his mum asked for some quails he was like i've left you seven of those and then it's kind of like, well, anyway, uh, my brother has been uh, has been haunting me. He's been causing me lots of issues. Can you sort it out? So, you know, you've got this uh, sort of telling, snitching on your brother from beyond the grave as well. That's so fascinating. And it's kind of, I think, again, like you were mentioning, it, it's, it's something that I think still resonates today. It's this sense of almost unfinished stories, unfinished issues unfinished problems or just things that you're struggling with in everyday life mm. you know this this need to still be able to reach to people who are out yeah. who were important to you and you know I think anybody who has lost someone that they cared about will recognize sometimes that internal voice that they have that internal dialogue they have with just throwing that question out to the person that they that they would have had that conversation with and you know whether that takes place at a graveside or in a cemetery or a church or if it takes place just in your own home i think we all still do that unconsciously and i think you still you see that but then here is something you know it's that kind of next level up or it becomes part of something ritualistic yes. um this communication with the dead and and i think that's partly because obviously for the ancient egyptians the passage of, of someone into the afterlife and the belief system of the afterlife was so very much part of their culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're, you're, you're totally right and about that sort of unconscious thing that people do. So you don't have to be a big believer in, in an afterlife or you don't have to be religious. You don't have to believe in ghosts and things like that to have those moments where you might say, you know, oh, just give me a sign, or you might look at a photograph and give it a nod. And, you know, it's little things like that that you do on, on a daily basis. But it's interesting saying about this idea of ritual as well, because 
I mean, I do it. I've got a photograph of my grandma who passed away a couple of years ago by the front door. And, you know, it's little things, isn't it? You always just sort of like say, hello, <laughs> you know, when you come in. Um, just sort of that comfort thing, isn't it, as well? Well, I think it's it's maintaining that connection, isn't it? Yeah. And And I think very much part of ancient Egypt was obviously this belief that the afterlife was so secure in terms of their mindset mm -hmm. and so therefore these continuations of these relationships were still really important to maintain even if that person was deceased yes. it, it was still a bond because you were expected and it was known and it was believed that you were going to be reunited with all of those people in the afterlife and you know i think you can see that so very clearly when i mean we're all very familiar with tombs where you know, other remains have been found mm -hmm. and placed together so that they can be together in the afterlife. And I think it, I think that really does show that profound sense of connection and these bonds in life still, you know, going to be there in death. So it does make sense that there is this continual communication um, when that belief system and that assurance that this is what was going to happen was so very much part of everybody's mindset. You know, it was their, very much their consciousness and their thought system. Yeah, and like I think the, the the continuous relationship aspect of it as well, the the relationship almost doesn't change sometimes. So we still sort of see this. Um, the things are kind of recipro reciprocal as well. So you know, I'm doing this to uphold your mortuary calls. I'm doing this to ensure that you're having a nice cushy life in the afterlife. You know, can you do me a favour? Which I think is really interesting as well. And it, it sort of comes back to this idea of the ancient Egyptian body as well. And, you know, all of these parts that make up you. And if that's, you know, that's whole. So that person's not like, not like, you know, if we see, um, if we think about ghost stories sometimes and, or a haunting and, and the ghost might not be sort of aware who they are or why they're there. Uh, or poltergeist activity, for example, um, where that poltergeist might not be sure what their history or past is or who they are and, and no one really knows why they're haunting anywhere and that kind of thing. It's very different, like this is still the same person in the afterlife with this, like you say, this continuous relationship, which is fascinating. And that'll continue up until the point that that mortuary cult ends, obviously for for pharaohs and things like that, that's going to go on much longer than than people who are sort of lower down in the social class. But it's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm kind of intrigued. You've got these examples of these returnings to haunt people. Mm. Is there evidence as to what that might have looked like in terms of the experiences of the person having this this phenomena, this haunting of their whoever it was? Um, is any of that recorded and documented as to what it was that they were experiencing as to why they were then reaching out to try and resolve this? Yes, so there's, there's two really interesting examples that are kind of different. So first off, we've got one that's uh, a true ghost story. And, and I say true because it's true to the people at the time. This is, their, this is what they believed. And um, then we also have the fictional aspect of it in ancient Egypt as well. So we have evidence for fictional ghost stories, which is fascinating. But if we start off with the 
the true one. Um, so we've we've got uh, evidence of a, a, it's a, a man is is the widower of a, a woman called Ankeri, and he is essentially appealing directly to his dead wife in the form of a letter. And he leaves the letter in a tomb and it's attached to a figurine of his wife, which I think is a really nice touch actually. And I think it's something that's a little bit different to, to bowls and linens and things like that. And he is being haunted by her. So this is this idea of sort of like the restless dead and, and returning to haunt. And he writes this really, really long letter. It's, it's quite desperate in parts. And he essentially says to Tracy, what have I done? You know, what have, what have I done to you? I've looked after you. I didn't even divorce you. I, you've had the best linens to wrap yourself up in. And there's a, a few translations to the story, and as, as with all of them. But there's a really common theme in the translation of this one that gets picked up um, in nearly all of the translations of the text. And it's interesting because it's the first, I think it's the first time I've seen an example of this, but he essentially says to Ankiri, you know, what you've done is to lay hands on me. So it's interesting to me because it, it implies that the haunting goes beyond, uh, you know, like an apparition or an audio phenomena. Um, and it, it's moving into the realm of physical contact. Um, so, and we also know there's there's other examples as well where people might have bad dreams and things like that, and that's how these hauntings are coming through. But here, we've obviously we've got we've got an apparition and we've got um, physical contact as well. Um, and you know, it goes on in this letter. It's like I say, it's quite long, and he he's sort of saying to her, "Well, he's, again, he's trying to find out what it is that he's done to make her." come back and haunt him, lay hands on him. And he says, you know, I've not been to any houses, uh, you know, in the three years since you've died. And he mentions it twice in the letter. And by houses, he mentions the sisters of the houses so we can interpret this as he hasn't visited as a sex worker. So he's essentially writing this letter to say, you know, I've, you've been dead for three years and I've not even had sex. Why are you attacking me um, as, a, as a ghost? Um, but yeah, and, and I think this is an interesting one as well because we can sort of safely assume the haunting stopped because there's no other examples in the tomb where he's written a letter to Ankiri. Uh, so it seemed to do the trick, you know? Which is so fascinating. I mean, it's, it's fascinating for different reasons. I, I think rightly because here you've got an example of someone who is believing they're having this experience where yeah. their deceased wife is physically having that communication in terms of touch yes and some yeah. kind of sensation of feeling touched i mean what that involves i mean is it something um sinister are they having some kind of an attack feeling like they're being attacked yeah or is it just the sensation of maybe feeling like someone's touching them or a touch on the shoulder a touch on the hand a touch on the arm type thing something a little less innocuous but even still anything along that scale is quite interesting because yeah. that's not something that you that many experience as a phenomena that sensation of something physically touching you but then yeah. the fact that it ends the interest in ghosts and the paranormal is fascinating but then this also the power of the mind and what it is that we can do and yes. 
is there an element here of well this communication is enough to bring some kind of a, of peace yeah, um does this yeah. suggest something about you know he had trauma surrounding the death of his wife and maybe yeah. things that he felt he hadn't done right and somehow by communicating in this manner is this something that's eased his own burdens and yeah. so is this is this a haunting that he's created um because of how he felt about the loss of his wife but then having this moment of closure has given him that peace that has ended this experience i mean it's yeah. it's fascinating and it's it's something that i think intrigues anyone interested interested in the paranormal as to what degree of of what's being experienced is being caused by us or yeah, yeah. by something else i mean it all kind of gets blurred and blended together i think so that's a really really interesting account fascinating yeah it is isn't it and i think that's so interesting as well with with um you know the idea of the power of the mind really isn't it and i did think when i was reading it has he got a guilty conscience because you know he does mention the fact he hasn't visited any houses twice in uh two parts of the letter towards the end um, you know, and I was thinking that, you know, could it could he have just been a bit guilty? But I hadn't sort of considered that idea that it could be, um, you know, closure for him as well, which is a really, really, really interesting, really interesting thought, yeah. I mean, there was this experiment carried out in Canada called the Philip Experiment, and it's quite well known, whereby mm. a group of people who were ranging in ages and experiences and kind of backgrounds over the course of a few years basically created this backstory that was completely fictional for a man called Philip from England yes. who yeah. who cheated on his wife and um got the the love you know this love interest this gypsy that he had met mm -hmm. basically killed by um association and he was so then traumatized by this loss that he committed suicide. And, you know, they, they, they create this very elaborate backstory that they then use to try and communicate with Philip. And obviously anybody who's interested in that, in that experiment will know that they then had very, very powerful experiences with things like the table moving quite yeah. alarmingly caught on on film they would have these these moments where they felt that philip who had not been real as a person who they had made up somehow is still coming through in phenomena that they're all experiencing and so there is i i do think it is something very important to consider how much we as investigators and people who might believe in something can also create something so yeah i think it's it's fascinating to kind of think about that when you have a story come through like that one that you shared where there are things coming through in some of the things that he was writing to her about yeah. where he is trying to almost prove something you know he's he's basically saying i'm being pure and true to our relationship yeah. you know so why are you still coming through and doing this to me and so it, it does suggest something very much a, an internal struggle as well, I think, in terms of needing something to be rectified or, I don't know. It's just, I think it poses some really interesting questions as to what was happening. Yeah, it does. And I think as well, because there's this sort of expectation in ancient Egypt that 
you know, life continues after the mortal body has is, is, is passed away. How difficult that must have been to, to grieve, you know, it's very, regardless of what you believe and whether you believe in an afterlife or anything, you, that sort of raw emotional hurt that you feel when someone passes away and then, and then, you know, the grief um, that continues forever and, you know, sort of balancing that with their own belief in that person still existing as they were, but in a different place that can communicate with you and that can return. And, you know, his, well, the recorded, the one that we have recorded, it potentially the only occurrence that we have where he's had contact with his deceased wife is a bad one. Mm. And that must have been quite a, a difficult thing to try and deal with as well emotionally. Gosh, absolutely. Um, especially when, as we've been saying, you know, the idea is that you are supposed to have positive interactions and, and a positive these positive bonds maintained to maintain these in death. Um, to have a good death and to have a good life in death. So yeah, it's it's fascinating to kind of see that kind of play out and how it then suddenly stops, which is just really interesting, you know, yes. to have that kind of ability to an analyse it and to then have the questions and thoughts about it. I think it reveals so much about the culture and the belief system yeah. just in one account alone. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's a fair few of them as well. To celebrate heading into the spookier season, autumn nights, howling wind and freezing rain, Halloween spookiness in the dark depths of winter, Haunted History Chronicles will be posting daily podcasts on Patreon, on all tiers over there, as well as the usual additional items offered. Signing up now will gain you access to these, as well as all previous archived content. For as little as £1 you could be getting hundreds of podcasts to enjoy, writing, source material and more, and know that you are contributing and helping the podcast to continue to put out more content. You can find the link in the episode description notes, as well as on the Haunted History Chronicles website or social media. So why not come along to enjoy a rich web of accounts perfect for this season? Dark tales of corpses, ghosts, folklore, Christmas and Halloween macabre traditions and connections, and a whole lot more. And now, let's head back to the podcast. So, you mentioned that the alternative was this ghost story... Do you want to just tell us a little bit more about that one and maybe what that kind of demonstrates about belief in ghosts? Yeah, so there's a really famous one and it's either called, you'll just see it referred to as a ghost story or a consmab and the ghost. And, you know, here we've got this idea of the returning spirit coming back in fictional accounts, which is, is again, in, in its own right, is super fascinating. And it's almost like an early cautionary tale uh, and this example was written over 3,000 years ago, you know, so it's it's amazing that we've got this record still. And it tells the tale of a priest named Amun uh, Konsumab 
and he has an encounter with a ghost. So, a uh, bit of a disclaimer though, because part of the text is missing. So the first part and then the last part of the text, uh, we don't have. And there's also various translations of it. Um, some people think it's Consmab the whole way through the story, uh, and some people think it's another person. I've translated it as like, another person experiences the haunting and then goes and fetches Consmab. So we'll just go with that one because it's it's a little bit more exciting. So it, it basically it starts off with somebody falling asleep in the Theban necropolis and then they wake up to find a spirit. And the spirit is a man called Nebusamech and he's really upset because he's got this tomb. It hasn't been looked after, you know, his mortuary cult hasn't been upheld. It's fallen to bits, he's had no offerings, he's hungry, he's cold. And there's a wind that is blowing through the tomb um, and he's scared. And I think that's the important thing is that this is a ghost who is scared because he thinks he's no longer going to exist because he hasn't had these uh, offerings and because he's got nowhere to live. And then Consmab comes into the story then and he summons the spirit of Nebusamech and he says, you know, tell me about yourself. And so he gives him this backstory how he was the overseer. He was he was overseer of, a tre- of the treasury of uh, King Manu- Manuhotep. He was the lieutenant of an army. So this is a guy who has had considerable station and he had a tomb that was really nice that is just now not fit for purpose at all. And he, he wants to help him, but Nebuchadnezzar is kind of having, having none of it. So he's like saying, you know, what can you do? You're a priest. There's nothing you can do about this. I've been promised before that someone had fixed my tomb and it'd be repaired and it just hasn't happened. So Consmab says, well, you know, if I, if I can't fix the tomb, then what I can do is I can order some of my servants to go and bring you food and water. So you've at least got that. So, you know, he goes away and Consmab sends some people to search for the tomb. And this is where it sort of cuts off. So it ends quite abruptly. But we can sort of assume, based on the fact that it's kind of a, an early cautionary tale, I guess, um, that he's true to his word and that he, um, you know, he goes and he carries out these wishes uh, for ne- Nebuchadnezzar. So he no longer has to, you know, wail around in the in in his broken down tomb and worry about what's going to happen to him. That's so fascinating, and I think I think you can see real connections with other types of ghost tropes and ghost mm-hmm. stories and ghost lore and folklore around certain aspects whereby the ghost story itself becomes this cautionary tale yeah. of a life unfulfilled for some reason, and therefore you can learn something from this type of story, whether it's choosing somebody that you shouldn't love, making the right choices about love, living the good life, living the good respectful life, the Christian life. Um, And somehow if you've fallen outside of that, then you obviously come back as the ghost in a lot of accounts, whereby because your life had this end, it's somehow unfulfilled in the afterlife. So you you can really see how this account from Egypt fits that same kind of narrative in the sense that well, it makes sense that concerns around how they are remembered and respected in death and maintained, you know, where they are buried is maintained yeah. as, a, as a sign of honouring them, how if that's not carried out properly, that you can then have these 
these types of hauntings where someone feels that they're being slighted in death. So Mm -hmm. it kind of stands as this this cautionary tale for people to maintain these sites, to keep honouring the dead, which again very much fits in what we've been saying about the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. Those bonds were so paramount and so important to maintain that here you've got an example where it hasn't and the ramifications and the repercussions of that are well here you have a spirit very much unhappy yeah unhappy and and scared you know yes. um you know you shouldn't you shouldn't really have to feel fear when you <laughs> when you're dead um but i think there's a there's another side to this cautionary tale as well so it's it's obviously it's it's about maintaining the mortuary cult essentially so it's a warning about that look at what will happen if not but I think it also would serve as a little bit of a warning for people to lead a good life and this is again like you were saying the themes that we see in cautionary tales throughout literature what would you do if you didn't lead a good life and you had no one to give you these offerings at all so you know at least he's had some for some period of time and he's getting them back uh, he's getting them back now seems like a nice nice ghost someone you'd want to help but what if you were not a very good person in life what if you didn't have many uh, have many friends or people that liked you what would happen to your your spirit your ach then and again we you know we only have to think about other burial sites you know, you have places of mourning so that people can do precisely that. It's a place to come back and yeah. honour. And that's why, you know, you, you have so many people who work tirelessly to try and maintain graves, even when no one else is able to do that after maybe their family has long gone too. Because we still have those same belief system. Again, it's a connection, isn't it? We, we have that same idea and that same principle of these are places to honour the dead. Mm-hmm. Even if they're no longer known and spoken about, their lives still mattered. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, again, it makes complete sense that that message is something being told in this tale of lead the good life so that you do have people that will will continue to honour you in death. It's quite powerful. It really is. Because, again, it is, it's, isn't it? I think it just allows us to see connections that maybe we don't realise are there. Um, yeah. I mean, the first time I read it, you know, I was like, wow, an, an ancient Egyptian ghost story, amazing. And then, you know, you read it again and you read the different translations of it as well, um, which can sometimes give it a slightly different meaning as well when, you know, depending on who's translated it. And it just gets a bit deep, you know? <laughs> Start feeling like, oh, it's less, it's less spooky and more just a really sad story that hopefully, I like to think, has got a really nice ending where, uh, you know, Nebusamek is, is happy and no longer feels scared and no longer has wind blowing through his tomb. Yeah, there's that resolution, isn't there? That yeah. you, you almost have, um, it's a cautionary tale, but it's also one that has a very clear, well, this is what we can all do about it. Yeah. You know, there's almost that sense of moral responsibility. You know, yes. we can all yeah. take responsibility for our dead. Um, so again, I think it's a really, I think it's a really powerful way of communicating with the masses, if you like, yeah. of the day, as to their significance and their importance in how they honour the dead. That's it. And I think uh, we, you know we don't know for sure how the story ends it, but 
I think that it's highly unlikely that it did end with <laughs> them not doing anything about it, you know? Uh, you know, judging by ancient Egyptian standards, unless you had somebody writing it who was a bit, you know, not 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 too nice maybe, but yeah, I think it's safe to say that there was a resolution and it was a good one. So if we kind of bring this now into more, say, the modern imagine, imagination, mm. how would you say ancient ghosts from Egypt present themselves today for people interested in the paranormal, whether it's investigators or just people experiencing sightings and, and reporting sightings of things connected with ancient Egypt? Yeah, so there's quite a few. And again, they're quite varied in, in sort of style as well. So, you know, you, after after the sort of re, resurgence and in interest in ancient Egypt during the Victorian times, we then start seeing these cautionary tales and literature and Victorian literature. That then sort of impacts us further down the line with all these you know, ancient Egyptian ghost stories, stories about uh, mummies returning from the dead and things like that. And these start seeping into the popular imagination. And we've got this idea of curses and cursed objects, first of all. And uh, there's a really interesting one actually about the Titanic. So it's about a month after the Titanic sinks. It's in the Washington Post. And they start theorizing that the sinking of the ship was due to an ancient Egyptian coffin lid that was cursed, right? And it belonged to Amun-Ra. And she's either reported in various media outlets as either um, a princess or a priestess. And these tales about it being haunted a curse on the Titanic aren't the first ones. So before that, we have tales of it being cursed and haunted in the British Museum. And we have reports of watchmen in the British Museum hearing their screaming and crying and banging on the coffin. A writer wrote a piece on her and apparently he became convinced that there was malevolent forces attached to it and then he died. And so you've got all these t these tales which are then conflated. And, you know, Amun-Ra's coffin lid, it, it is, it's a real thing. It wasn't on the Titanic. Uh, it didn't actually leave the British Museum until just like a very a brief stint in the 90s. But people still report feeling odd in its presence. So if you go and visit the British Museum, it's just it's known as like the unlucky mummy. So you know you might you might have heard of it in you know various news outlets. Every couple of years, it'll have a bit of a resurgence and, and people report and feeling unwell, or that they go away and they have really bad runs of bad luck after being in its presence. But more. Uh, even coming up to like the modern day again, you've got you've got this in in the museum, but then outside of the museum setting as well. So her ghost is said to haunt Holborn Station on the underground in London. And again, we have these reports of screaming and of wailing and things like that. Um, so yeah, that's one that sort of come right the way through and stuck with us. I think there are plenty of reports from you know surrounding the titanic sinking whereby it was reported in the media that the story of the mummy was being told the night of the sinking wasn't yeah. it in terms of people sat around at, the, at their, their wonderfully elaborate dinner with all their fine china and and you know the white linen in their coattails and, and hats and so on listening to this story of the cursed mummy and that was the night that the, the sinking happened 
And so it, it is something that you see very much as this enduring theme, the, the idea of something being cursed in some capacity. And we see it with Tutankhamun and, you know, the, the, the discovery of his tomb and then everybody having a mysterious death or these, these plagues against them, these incidents against them after they have unearthed him, you know, and removed his body. And there's another one in Edinburgh, and this was something made known to me by a fellow podcaster, you know, Eerie Edinburgh, who are fantastic, really great podcasts. Yeah, I've listened to Eerie Edinburgh. Brilliant, brilliant yep, podcast. Great podcast. But he he knows of, of one in Edinburgh itself from the 1930s, and I'm, I think I'm saying this right, but I may not be, of someone called Zila Seton. Zila Seton. Okay, yeah, yeah. Who took a sacrum from a tomb in the Valley of the Kings back to Edinburgh in the 1930s. And once they returned, they then had all manner of hauntings. You know, the idea being that the, the bone itself was cursed and therefore this was something being inflicted on the household. So you've got, again, something very much along the same lines of what you were talking about. This connection with Egypt, ghost stories and curses very much following through in so many different reports and accounts and stories worldwide I would say yeah absolutely worldwide and I think part of it is you know you've got this sort of fascination with ancient Egypt people were uh, bringing things back they shouldn't be you know there's a lot of theft and looting that went on and illicit trade and even gifting and things like that and I think it, it does leave this sort of question and in people's minds of what would happen if you what's going to happen if you do that that's if it's not the right thing to do um so again coming back to this idea of the cautionary tale then like the Setons, you know that's that's a cautionary tale you've brought somebody's human remains back that you shouldn't have done then what's what are the repercussions for that given that this is coming at at a time kind of off of the back of not only theft of of mummies and and other artifacts and things but the desecration of mummies when we yes, think about yeah. you know their their remains being used in medicine in in art in you know turning it into yeah. paint yeah. um yeah i mean they were used for all manner of things and i think that became something once that became known that was distasteful in for, for some so it became something that was a bit more of a topic point so it kind of makes sense that it then transitions into something maybe that does have that element of we should be fearful of this because what happens if there is this outcome at the end of it? So it kind of makes sense that it all transitions into that as a type of a story, an account based on the very quite stark history in terms of of desecration of, of tombs, of mummies, of artefacts and, and theft. Yeah, and it becomes almost like a gothic trope, mm. and we've never we've never really shaken that off. We see it in films and and books all the time, um, and in and in stories like you know like 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 Amun Ra um, in Holborn, who has been taken from from her resting place and now haunts is said to haunt a space in London, <laughs> so. But yeah. I think I think it fits very much again when we think about other ghost lore around the dead. Yeah. You know, you see the same pattern, don't you, in terms of if if places of burial have been um, disturbed in some capacity, yes. that that then somehow affects 
um, that spirit in the afterlife. So it does make sense. And I think when we think very much about the Christian belief in the, in death being, well, you had to have the proper burial and it be done in certain manners for you to have that transition into the afterlife. It, mm-hmm. it kind of does make sense that you then do have these, these elements like curses coming through where it becomes so very much ingrained, I would say, in popular culture belief system that yeah. still exists today, but we don't necessarily know, we don't necessarily know and understand how that originated until you start peeling back the layers of understanding the history when it comes to treatment of, of ancient Egypt. Yeah artifacts etc yeah and and a lot of it uh you know a lot of media hype as well around Mm. certain events so you know what you do when the initial news story started down how do you keep people engaged people love a ghost story definitely and again i think there's something very enduring about those types of tales that just fascinating uh, that are just fascinating to us and you know I had I had the pleasure of talking to Sylvia Schultz and you know that podcast went out recently yes I was going to mention that because Sylvia mentioned the is it the mummy at the field museum the screaming mummy yes I was thinking I need to I need to contact Sylvia and ask about that Uh, because I was like right yeah because there's there's a lot of reports of, of museums of various types of hauntings at museums in relation to like the ancient Egyptian dads. And it it was one that I'm I'm not kidding when I say it gave me goosebumps Ooh, okay. <laughs> over my entire body because it, there's something very visual about it. And mm. you know, in, in this case, it was this seeing it almost like a swarm, you know, this mist that's like a swarm of bees moving oh, to this. Okay. And I was like, crikey, that again, just something very, very visual and visceral about that. It's yeah, it's it's something yeah. that I think is it's that that they have their own kind of pattern and um, law in itself in terms of the types of sightings yeah. and experiences that you have. One of them being things like the screaming mummy. There's there's often these similar types of sounds or experiences that I do think set them apart and really do warrant, I think, examining the type of law and reports around mm. these types types of artifacts because. Yeah, they're fascinating. Really, really interesting. Yeah, like you say, it usually links back to that that sort of rage and anger, doesn't it? Or confusion mm. of, you know, why am I here? But there's there's different ones as well. So there's another one in Leeds. Um, I think it was 2017. Uh, and Leeds have got a really famous mummified uh, ancient Egyptian priest called Nessie Moon. And we've got two paranormal investigators who, who go and you know to undertake an investigation at the museum and they'd reported so they've got like a bit of a setup at least it's a fake fake tomb to try and showcase what it you know what it would be like in, in Nessie Moon's tomb in Egypt and um they start reporting about their equipment going off and you know all sorts of things going wrong with it but then they they report seeing an apparition like a shadow apparition of a hooded priest which I thought was so unusual because I haven't heard anything like that before. You don't normally hear of them. Um, you don't normally hear reports when it comes to ancient Egyptian ghosts as being almost like the monk figure that we have in in. It's another. It's again. It's another trope, isn't it? Seeing the mm-hmm. hood of monk. So I thought that was really interesting, kind of like a merging of two different styles of hauntings that get reported. 
I think you're right. It is that kind of almost blending of um, yeah. of tropes, which makes it interesting. And again, just poses that question of why, you know, is it just, are we making that connection? Are we seeing something because it's something familiar to us or is it something else? Um, but yeah. we are identifying it as something because that's something that we recognize. But it, it is, it's just fascinating. And when you really do start to unpick accounts like this, you do see so many. And it's, I, for me, I think it, I find it fascinating in the sense that I'm not someone that necessarily kind of stands fully behind the idea of objects being haunted. I don't necessarily think mm-hmm. that's the right way of describing it. I think things can have things can have energies attached to them. Yeah, yeah. Which is different. I think it reads differently. It kind of comes across differently. And that makes sense to me really very strongly when it comes to particularly artifacts when it surrounding Egypt, ancient yes. Egypt. Yeah. And I think if the culture and the belief system is such that these are very symbolic things that matter in death, mm-hmm. it makes sense for energy that it can something can become attached to them because yeah. to them it was so very important. And I think when you have that, it's no different than to residual hauntings of someone returning to their family home because yes. that was what was important to them. Yeah. Here, these artefacts had the same kind of religious, symbolic importance. And so, again, it makes sense that you can have these types of phenomena reported yeah. around artefacts yeah. or mummies or places of burial, because to them, that was so very, very important to their everyday existence in life and in death. Yeah. And I think as well, again, going back to this idea of, of, of sort of stories and cautionary tales i think there's we often forget that the ancient or we i think it's difficult to fathom sometimes isn't it that that when we see a mummy in a museum that's a corpse and and that that's a corpse of somebody who um you know it's like you say that has got things like amulets and and protective um aspects to it they've been separated from their belongings that would have been important to them in their tomb set and it's interesting what you're saying about um about objects as well holding sort of energies it's almost like um like it like stone tape theory on a really small scale isn't it like yeah i guess you know with the way a building or space can can hold a a a memory or um like an echo Mm. or can objects do that too I think when we think about how so many of their their rituals and the preparation of the dead, you know, think about how many people were then putting their energy into these amulets, these artifacts, these various yeah. things in the tomb, and then family as well. And so it is almost this collective energy yeah. that I do think could result in something then still being present centuries later that we pick up on and we feel yeah. too. And so it, it's an extension, I think, of of other types of hauntings that people experience, but yeah. slightly different in that sense. And I think that, to me, makes more sense as a way of understanding and thinking about it, rather than this idea of something literally being haunted. Mm, um, mm-hmm. I think, for me, I just like to try and think about it and word it slightly differently, because I think that doesn't really say a lot, but I think... No this kind of discussion I think 
is a more for me certainly is a is a more interesting way of looking at it and trying to unpick well what does that mean if if an object is haunted yeah. why what's the rationale behind it and as I say that doesn't really say a lot whereas I think this kind of discussion just adds a bit more interest and a bit more intrigue as to the whys and the ins and outs yeah adds another layer to it doesn't it mm, you know definitely you just reminded me of another one as well when you when you mentioned about amulets so I was listening to the witch farm Danny Robbins production and there was there was a follow-up episode where the family were talking about finding an ancient egyptian amulet in the earth uh, on the farm on um Helvanog in wales but they also as part of that sort of followed up by saying they they had had experiences when they visited egypt and the great pyramids of flashing lights so it kind of conflates this and they were have they were experiencing they'd reported experiencing, you know, haunting um, and and poltergeist reports of poltergeist activity in their property that wasn't Egyptian in nature at all. But then there's this extra layer of it which I thought was really interesting, sort of like finding you know this is a bonus track of some <laughs> on a CD or something. But it's you just found an ancient Egyptian am- amulet and it's it's a real amulet as well in in the field but yeah sort of merging and conflating these two um these two types of phenomena with each other so it's another blended one and again another one is there a suggestion that this amulet somehow caused these energies in the house i don't know well i think it just throws throws out there that you know, it's something that we still have all these questions about. We're still unsure. We're still asking so much of of what is happening and the experiences that people report. Yeah. And I think when we have all of these theories and questions and and things that do happen, things that do get found, I just think it just prompts more questions and, and more reason, to be honest, as to why the importance of really trying to investigate these things is so valid because not everything gets is so easily tied up in a bow and um, can be presented as one thing. There's usually far more complex stuff at play. Yeah, and I think it's yeah. important to not keep trying to discount and throw things out. I think it's I think it's valid to have discussions and propose theories and try and investigate those. You know, will yeah. we ever have the answers? I don't know. But the fact that we still keep asking those questions again tells us a lot about ourselves and and why we. I think it does, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. But I think that's that's so important, though, isn't it? Because I always sort of come back to this idea that you know, if you've experienced something, you've experienced something. Yeah. Nobody can tell you you haven't. And well, they could tell you, yeah, but you know, <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be. They don't. Nobody knows what you've experienced apart from yourself is essentially what I guess I'm trying to say. Um, And for the ancient Egyptians, this was very real. For people who have, you know, encountered a run of bad luck after after interacting with the cursed mummy at the British Museum, that's very real to them. You know, so I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? All of the, the ways in which it's woven through from the ancient times to now <laughs> and can and continues to find outlets i mean we've mentioned yeah. things like 
films and how popular things like The Mummy did and other books and, you you know, stories and accounts. But you only have to look at um, ancient revival graves to see how, again, we're hearkening to something and we are bringing in symbols and, you know, other other things as part of those memorials to try and create those same symbolic messages and meanings behind them in the same way that you see in other grave motifs etc but obviously in these examples we've got other things then coming through from other cultures and again just so much lore surrounding these these types of graves and they are so popular i mean there's so many people that enjoy going to cemeteries to to look at the types of memorials that exist the motifs that are there because they they themselves tell their own types of stories and i think these egyptian revival graves act just as similarly and have these important stories and messages to share they do and you know cemeteries have got their own language as well and especially you know victorian you know, got a language for everything. There's a language for flowers and things like that, floriography, and and you see these sort of intertwining themes then. So you might have like an obelisk with an urn on top or and a veil to symbolise the, the the thin veil that separates life from death. Um, various flowers to symbolise, you know, eternity, and then these sort of like mixed ideas as well. So we see the obelisk. A lot in cemeteries. That's a re- that's probably the most common thing that w- that we see, in uh, when we think about Egyptian revival graves, is the obelisk. And there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, you've got uh, the links with Masonic practice. It's you know, um, it's, it's quite a heavily featured symbol in the craft. But you've also got this mix and this merging of ideals of the everlasting structure. Of, a, of an obelisk, for example, but also this idea of it pointing up to the sky, pointing straight to God. So you see this a lot in cemeteries, and then there's sort of like neoclassical mi- mashups that you see as well, which are amazing. So you see uh, sort of Greek and Roman themes mixed in with ancient Egyptian themes. We see a lot of sun discs, a lot of faux temples and pyramids. We've got one in Liverpool that's uh, I've got a ghost story attached to it actually as well. Um, yeah, we've got the Mackenzie Pyramid. So yeah, that's that's another one and that's so steeped in local lore that you know everyone knows about the pyramids and, and the man inside it, Mackenzie. Do you know about him or do you want me to tell you about him? Oh, please do, because I don't actually know this one. So oh, brilliant. Like, okay, right. Scratching <laughs> my head thinking, why have I not heard this one? Because oh, right. there's so many great ones, but now I have One of my favourites. So it's really interesting as well, because it's a really common type of story that we see attached to pyramid graves. So we've got this 15-foot pyramid in Liverpool on Rodney Street, um, and it's the Mackenzie uh, tomb. Different variations of the story, obviously, because it, it changes as time goes on and depending on what ghost walk you're on as well you know and um the story goes that, that William Mackenzie was a bit of a bit of a gambling man and one night he is uh, drinking and gambling somewhere on Rodney Street and he's losing really badly and then a man approaches and says you know 
If you win, then I'll pay off all your debts. I'll pay off all your gambling debts. And you'll, you'll, you'll be a rich, you'll be a wealthy man. But if you lose, then I get your soul. Turns out he's the devil, obviously. So, uh, of course, William Mackenzie loses. He loses not only his house, his money, his wife, but he is now going to lose his soul. But the devil gave him a stipulation uh, in the contract. Kind of all, a bit of a loophole, rather. And he says, I'll take your soul when you're six feet under. So the story goes that William Mackenzie then commissioned a pyramid grave where he is sat upright at a table with a winning deck with a winning hand of cards in his hand. And I think it's it's a really fascinating story. Um unfortunately, hate to be a killjoy, but the pyramid so it's one of the ones I'm, I've been researching for a long time actually and it's an absolute nightmare trying to find out anything about it in part because I can't find the masonry mark because it's locked uh, it's locked up now it's part of uh, land belonging to flats so they they you know redid the chapel there so you need a very very tiny graveyard uh, they redid the chapel and turned it into flats so you can't really get in sweet talk and the guard didn't work unfortunately so and um yeah he, his brother actually commissioned that about 15 years after he, after William Mackenzie passed away. But it's fascinating how we have this lore attached to it. And this idea of the devil again, so we see this with Mad Jack Fuller as well, so that's that's another one. Uh, but he's sat up inside the story goes um, with a roast dinner. So, you know, and again, this idea of the devil, once you're six feet under, I'm going to take yourself. Well, I'll just put myself in a pyramid then. <laughs> it's just, it's it's amazing when you think about it it's almost like taking aspects of other cultures isn't it and like you yeah. said it, is, it becomes yeah. this mashup this complete mix and blend to suit what people needed um and yeah. in this case you've got a ghost story and uh, you, you know a an account of, of someone in 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 death cheating death if you like yes yeah. by taking something from another culture. I mean, it's fascinating. It's just so interesting to to look into these things, though, because mm. I just think it they they always, like you said, everything has a language, doesn't it? And yes. this is just another type of communica communication and understanding of belief systems and where we've been and our own beliefs around death and that kind of transitional nature of death and beliefs but at the same time, things that still resonate, still things that we do now. Yeah. yeah, it's so intriguing, so fascinating. Yeah, and, and you know, it becomes a part of local culture then as yeah. well. That continues to be told and mm. so familiar with people. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And, and changes. Yeah, you then get the variations depending mm. on who's telling it. And again, you see that then very much in the in folklore don't you but i think yeah. the same thing is true when it becomes these types of ghost loric tales whereby they do change based on things that are happening in particular periods of time so you have these subtle slight changes that then 200 years down the line you've got to wonder well where is it going to be then if it's still being told but again it's something i said before the fact that these are stories that are the ones that are being perpetuated speaks so much to the importance of us and our connection with death whether we like it or not we may find death an uncomfortable topic but ghost stories ghost lore accounts around cemeteries 
paranormal activity does seem a more comfortable way of discussing death for many. Yeah, yeah, it does. And so, yeah, again, there's just so many layers to it. And it, I think it's peeling back some of these layers that allows us to really understand the, the, the ins and outs and why that, that we do that. It's just so fascinating, isn't it? I mean, yeah, oh my gosh, when yes. And, <laughs> when you stop and think about the relationship that we've got with death, yeah how that's shaped yep by not only our own culture and our own sort of sanitized relationship with it now as well you know we don't do we do we perhaps see more of these ghost stories coming out more of this idea of the fascination with the with the ancient egyptian corpse with mummies with ancient egyptian ghost stories because we have this you know more more of a removal from the body Mm -hmm. as well so we don't Mm -hmm. really have as many ritualistic practices generally speaking um you know obviously there are cultures and religions that do but you know a lot of the time we don't it's sort of like you know you die you go off to the to the undertakers they sort things out and then it's up to the family whether you want an open casket or not invariably you don't so that's it off you go and then you don't have a lot of that interaction that we used to have. So I wonder if that's, that, I mean, it must do, mustn't it? It must impact mm-hmm. our relationship and understanding of death and our want and need to to listen to ghost stories and to, you know, from way back to now. Um, I mean, I think it's something that I, I've spoken about previously with um, Aoife, who is pathological bodies and you know i think i think we have this removal from death that we didn't have before i mean people used to tend the bodies they they cared for the bodies in death it was something something part of what the family would do and like you said now we tend to be very hands-off in that experience of, of someone dying we we don't necessarily care for people they are in hospice, they're in hospitals, they're no longer in homes in the same way. People would have died in their homes with their family predominantly. That doesn't happen as much. No, Um, it doesn't, They're then cared for and buried by other people. And yeah, I think think when you have that distance and that removal, again, I think it throws up more unknowns and again sometimes more questions about what happens afterwards because it becomes a topic of conversation that you become less and less comfortable talking about and so therefore again is this a routine way into ways of being able to understand and talk about loved ones and talk about death in the afterlife yeah i mean it's 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 so interesting and like i said there's so many layers and ways of looking at this and and different perspectives and lenses through which you can look at. But honestly, this has just been just such an interesting conversation to be able to talk about such an intriguing, fascinating culture. Yeah. And, you know, just touching the iceberg with, in terms of, of what it can tell us and, and stories that it has to show and ghost stories and then things that we can discover when we we go and look at some of these graves and then lore that surrounds those and then artifacts in museums i mean yeah <laughs> it's just it's just incredible <laughs> there's so much to unpack isn't there like, all mm-hmm. the time every time i open something i'll look at something now i'm like 
Ah, uh, there's another three years of my life gone thinking about this. <laughs> one day I'm just well, yeah. gonna one day I'm just gonna invite all the people I want to invite to talk about all of these topics around the dinner table and we can just sit there until we are all you know, satisfied and talked out. <laughs> I would love that so much. I'll be It'd there. Be great. <laughs> We'd probably still be there after 10 years. We'll still. make it into a ritualistic thing. It'll be, it'll be wonderful. You know, <laughs> we need this. We crave a ritual. We don't have it anymore. So, well, Absolutely. in the same way. <laughs> Honestly, I, I can't thank you enough. It's such an intriguing conversation and it's just been such a joy to have the chance to to chat and unpick some of it with you. So thank you so much for, for kind of giving up your time to share some of this knowledge with me and then others listening through the podcast. Oh, no, thank you for having me honestly I, I mean you know I'm a I'm a fan of the podcast as well Michelle so I have to admit that when you messaged me I did lose my cool a little bit but I don't think I gave it away so it's all good but yeah thank you so much for having me <laughs> honestly it's been a joy it's been you are welcome back anytime whether it's to talk about graves or stories or artifacts or anything like that and Amazing. yeah and I'd I love will- that I will keep a space ready for you at that dinner table when I manage to do it. <laughs> Honestly, I I can't say thank you enough. And um, I will make sure that all of your details are on the podcast description, notes, etc. So people can come and find you easily, whether it's oh, thank you. your website, um, which has so many great things on there in terms of your research. I mean, you are so public in sharing with, with that. But then obviously Thanks. your social links so that they can keep on top of what you're doing and you know your many adventures <laughs> yeah <laughs> in graveyards <laughs> yep always good sources of adventures though they are <laughs> thank you honestly thank you so much michelle it's been a pleasure oh thank you michelle it's yeah it's been brilliant it's just great isn't it getting to chat about my favorite topics for <laughs> yeah you know for an evening it's brilliant thank you and i will say goodbye to everybody listening bye everyone <laughs> <laughs>